And, you know, I have a philosophy, be a sponge, learn everything, go into every new environment. I've been in four different industries with four different startups and I've learned them all along the way. Be a learn it all, not a know it all. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Divya Gugnani, to our show today. Divya is the CEO and co-founder of Wander Beauty, a clean, cruelty-free beauty brand that creates multitasking beauty essentials. Divya began her career in the world of finance and has extensive experience in investment banking, private equity, and venture capital. She calls herself an accidental entrepreneur and eventually left finance to pursue her newfound passion as an entrepreneur. After co-founding multiple businesses with two successful exits and having two children in less than two years, Divya found her former beauty rituals tossed to the wayside as she became more time-starved than ever. Balancing a thriving career and motherhood, Divya realized there were no beauty brands speaking directly to her, a woman who loves beauty and maintains a fast-paced lifestyle. And that's when Divya's fourth business, Wander Beauty, was born. With over 30 beauty awards in five years, including Allure's Best of Beauty Awards, Wander Beauty has become a favorite of editors, influencers, and customers alike. They have celebrity devotees, including Heidi Klum, Emma Roberts, Sarah Jessica Parker, Molly Sims, and more. We'll talk to Divya about her transition into entrepreneurship from the corporate world, the biggest lessons she learned, both personal and professional, in launching and building four different businesses, and tips she gives all founders when it comes to fundraising and getting a brand off the ground. Welcome to the show, Divya. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited that you're here too. I love that you never saw yourself as an entrepreneur, but fast forward to today, you have four businesses under your belt. And I think the way you got there and the lessons you've learned are going to be really helpful for everybody listening today. So I'd love to start from the beginning. After reading more about your story, I know your family and culture really has impacted the woman you are today. So I'd love to start there and learn more about your upbringing and how you think it's really impacted the women that you are today. So my father came to America in the 60s to get his master's degree. And then he had an arranged marriage with my mom. And she came here after they got married. And I was born in Springfield, Illinois, which is the middle of nowhere. And we were one of very few Indian families in our town, which was the capital. And my dad worked for the government. So there was that. And then my older sister was born there. I was born there. And then my father ended up losing his job, which was traumatic for my mother, who was just had just had a baby. He, she just had my older sister and was worried about how they were going to pay their rent and was like completely stressed out. And my dad was like, let's drive to Florida. No one's going to hire me over Christmas break anyway. <laughs> let's figure this out next year when we come back. I mean, he's just like a, and he figured it out. He became an entrepreneur. And I think growing up in a family where my father was an entrepreneur actually had the opposite effect on me. I did not want to be an entrepreneur. I saw the ups. I saw the highs. I saw the lows. I saw all of that. And I really strongly did not want that kind of inconsistency and ups and downs. Culturally, I came from a family where 
women in my family just generally did not really work. My mom never had a job. She was a stay-at-home mom, which was work in and of itself, but a different type of work. And my father's family, no one had ever really worked. Neither of my grandmothers had ever had a job. My mom's sisters hadn't really worked. So my dad's sisters hadn't really worked. One of them became a widow and, you know, worked with my father for a little while, but it was just culturally a very like traditional background and upbringing. I was very shy and introverted. I, you know, my parents just showed these like wild, crazy parties in the eighties and nineties and like tons of Indian food and like cooking and cards during the Bali and playing cards till 4am and gambling. I hid in the kitchen. I was not social. I was not friendly. I was never that kid who was hustling with the lemonade stand and thought she was going to be an entrepreneur. That just goes to show you that despite your cultural background, despite how you're raised as a woman, despite how your innate personality to be introverted is, you can still be an incredibly successful entrepreneur. And I feel that it's just, you have to find it your own way. You have to find your own path and you have to develop your own style. Absolutely. And I, there's a couple things that you hit on that really resonates with me. One of them, your dad seems like my dad in terms of <laughs> immigrant coming here. There's times we didn't have money. He was like, I'll figure it out. And we had really high highs, but I've also seen our family being really low lows and it always worked out. But being around that, I feel like I'm very in tune with the entrepreneurial spirit. And on the second aspect that you mentioned, you know, you've talked a lot about how you were introverted, how you didn't necessarily become the kid with a lemonade stand, but fast forward to today, you know, you're now on your fourth business, which is what gets me excited about this interview, because I think your journey has had a lot of different layers. And I think will serve as a big inspiration to any kind of woman today, because it's so multifaceted. So I'm really looking forward to jumping in. And there's actually an interesting point that I also wanted to bring up that I read is you got into trans Transcendental meditation. I think you were in yep. seventh grade. So how did that come yeah. about? I'm sure it's helped you as an entrepreneur today too. So interesting. So as a kid, I was bouncing off the walls. I just had a lot of energy and I didn't know how to productively channel it. I probably had some form of hyperactivity. And my mom was just like a very forward thinking person. Like, you know, I had a lot of skin concerns when I was growing up and my mom never let me buy Clearasil and Neutrogena. Although I begged many times, I just needed to calm myself. And so my mom took me to India and we went to a Maharishi Mahesh Yogi clinic back when they used to have them. And I went to a meditation center and I learned how to practice transcendental meditation. And initially it was quite hard for me because A, I was just hyperactive. And so that idea of sitting still as a seventh grader for 20 minutes in the morning and in the evening was hard for me, but I was committed to the practice. I didn't give up. As you can see from many other things in my life, I was just determined to do it and I did it. And once I did it, I found peace. I found it to be incredibly restful and relaxing and allowed me to channel my energy and be more productive every day. And I love it. Like it has just been my savior. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me balanced. It keeps me rested. And I've been practicing transcendental meditation twice a day, every day for many, many years. I've tried to get into meditation. I only get into crisis meditation when I really need it. But if I could do that every day, the way you do, I can only see the powerful effects of it, especially Mm -hmm. when you are an entrepreneur and you're diving into a world that's more unknown and you have to really listen to your intuition. I'm sure it's helped you quite a bit. And, you know, one thing that you also mentioned growing up in a family where the women didn't necessarily work, you had a very 
successful career starting out, you really jumped into the world of finance, you were in investment banking, venture capital, PE. I'd love to hear more about that experience in your life and kind of the key themes you think you've really pulled from your world in finance. And I know there's probably so much to dig into there. So the first thing I really learned in my very first job at Goldman Sachs is there's no I in Goldman Sachs. And that taught me everything I needed to know about business. You are never going to win as a sole contributor. You always have to be as strong as the team that builds and grows the whole business. And every person matters. And so that aspect of outstanding people build outstanding brands, I learned that very early on. And I think as I built and grew in my career and built my own teams and created my own businesses, I learned that people aspect. I learned it the hard way. I made a lot of mistakes. I hired the wrong people. I was more patient with people I shouldn't have been with. I, you know, I did all the wrong things, but innately, my heart was always in the right place. I had good intentions and I believed that investing in people and investing in relationships would always be the best thing for me, both personally and professionally. And I learned that in finance. You know, you work hard, you work a lot of hours and you work on teams. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're bringing that up because I also grew up in the world of finance. And when I wanted to pivot into entrepreneurship and the tech world, a lot of people were thinking, what skills do you have that are going to be transferable? I'm like, there is so much about team building, execution, work ethic that just looking at your own journey, it clearly has worked well for you in the startup world. And one thing that I'm curious about is you clearly were going up the ranks, right? You've had a multifaceted career. What was the impetus for you to go and get your MBA when you were already successful? Were you looking for a career change or what was really pushing you to go through grad school again? You know, I wasn't looking for a career change. I had worked in private equity prior to business school and venture capital. And I knew I wanted to go back into the investing side. And that's exactly what I did after business school. But the reality is I just wanted a break. I had worked for four years, slept under a desk. And I know this sounds bizarre because it's in a very expensive break to pay for your MBA yourself, which is what I did. I really just wanted to decompress. I wanted to meet people from all around the world. I wanted to travel. And that's what I did. I visited like over 40 countries in the two years that I was in business school. I went to Iceland. I went to Uruguay. I went to Argentina. I mean, I went everywhere I could and I loved it. I loved how enriching the experience was. People say like, Oh, did you learn so much at Harvard? Do you feel like those skills helped you so much? I hate to say it, but like, it wasn't about the classroom. It was about the people. Again, coming back to that central theme of people, like I met great people and those people enriched my life during those two years I was there and well beyond that, because those relationships I built are still relationships that I hold near and dear to my heart as I'm building my companies. Absolutely. And I'm a big believer of the power of network. You know, even if you don't go to business school, if you're able to yeah. cultivate that in your everyday life, it's changed my life in so many ways. So I'm so glad you also brought that up. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you've mentioned earlier in this interview, you know, you never thought you would be an entrepreneur. And actually, you fell into your first business, I believe, with your boyfriend at the time in the auto yeah. parts industry. So how did that come about? And what really pushed you to take the leap to do that full force with him? You know, I just said, why not take a chance? And the Wall Street Journal actually wrote an article about it and said, toe in the water. And that was it. I put a toe in the water. I was dying to learn what it was like to be an entrepreneur, but I wasn't willing to give up my 
full-time job as a venture capitalist, which I had a great career and great job and I was thrilled with it. So I had an opportunity to work nights and to work weekends and build a brand and build a business and see the inner workings and make a lot of mistakes. And I got so lucky. I was in the right place at the right time with a business that just took off. And everyone should have that kind of luck. And I say luck because it was a lot of hard work and it was luck. And, you know, that business built and grew and we sold it and that was it. It was fast. It was just a rocket ship. And it gave me the nest egg to do everything else. Absolutely. And a couple of things stand out. You know, sometimes I don't know if you're interested in the auto parts industry, but for me, I worked with my dad building a business in telecommunications and it's not sexy at all, but similar to you, I wanted hands-on experience just to build a company. So I think sometimes you can get those valuable skill sets, you know, maybe not in an industry you necessarily love, but the business aspect is still so helpful, right? You know, what's so great when I was going to high school and my dad every summer had me work in his warehouse. So like I literally packed boxes, put invoices together, put labels on boxes. I did that. And he was like, you want me to pay for college? You get to work in the warehouse. And I was like, you know what? This is at the time I was miserable. And I was like Windexing the desks alongside the cleaning lady. I did every job. No job was too little for me. No job was too big for me. I like ran around when I had my license dropping packages places And it was fine. Like it's the experience. You just got to like roll up your sleeves and get as much experience as you possibly can, because it's going to teach you something. Absolutely. And if you don't realize it now, it always, there is a silver lining and experience that comes from it when you're building your own business. And what would you say were some of the big mistakes, whether it's personally or professionally in the business that you did in your first startup that obviously eventually became successful and you sold? So I think the first thing was the relationship. I think that it put a big strain on my personal relationship. And I find it hard when people, like a lot of people, you know, work with their spouse and they make a great opportunity out of it. And it works for them. My my mom and dad have a couple that they're friends with that have been working together for 40 years. And they're the most amazing couple. And by the way, they eat lunch together every day, (laughs) which I think is like, I'm like, you work together, you spend the night together and you eat lunch together too. You must really love each other. Um, which I admire. I just like, it's not for me. I, I learned that it's good in business in particular. I think it's great to have very strong relationships, but I do believe they should be based on skill set. They shouldn't be based on your personal chemistry. I think that the biggest mistake is getting involved in business with someone that you're emotionally involved with because the emotions come at work, the work comes at home and plays into the emotional relationship. It's just that for me was the biggest mistake I made. And after that, I never made it again. Mm, That is interesting. Yeah, you do hear both sides of that equation, how some people work together, some people don't. And it's definitely interesting to hear that. And so after you sold that business, then you ventured off on your own and you started Behind the Burner, which I know you showcase culinary experts all over the world. And you've been very open about how that concept specifically didn't scale. And it just felt like you were hitting a brick wall every single day. So as someone who now started, you know, you're on your fourth company, what was it about Behind the Burner that you think didn't allow allow that specific idea to succeed? It was before its time. If it was three years later, it would have been amazing. And so that's what's so interesting. I literally looked at a startup today and someone pitched me a business and it makes so much sense now, but I literally saw that pitch like six years ago and someone started that exact tech company and it went out of business. So it's like technology evolves, moods and trends evolve. Like there was no Instagram. If I started behind the burner when there was Instagram, it would be, I would be like, 
a huge food blogger ahead of my time with a massive following in, in contracts. And so the media platforms were not there in a way that people were consuming on the web, what they can consume in bite sizes on Instagram. And so I feel very strongly. What was the impetus for you to stop behind the burner? Because I know that's really what pivoted you into a very successful fashion accessory company. So two different industries, two different companies. How did that kind of correlate with each other? So, you know, it's so interesting. Entrepreneurs see things others don't see. They take risks that others don't take, but they also need to know when to pull the cord. Failure is not an option. You're supposed to work, work, work until you make it work. And for me, it was really clear to me that I could make it work. It was a profitable business. It was a business that had grown, but it was not scaling. And so I knew that there was very limited product market fit. And then I could take along and it would be a small growth business and it would be a niche business. And it would never leave the imprint in the entrepreneurial community in New York that I wanted to leave. And so I knew I had to do something else. And so I looked at a personal pain point in my own life. I had gone from being on a finance salary and being able to afford anything in any department store to being on an entrepreneur salary, which was non-existent and being able to afford nothing in the department store and then updating my looks with accessories. And I really just felt like I was wearing the same clothes and I was just like changing the accessories. I was wearing the same clothes outfit and changing the accessories. And I was like, this is how a girl lives in New York city when she's on an entrepreneur salary. And for me, I knew that made sense. And I really wanted to build something in tech. And so I partnered with an amazing technologist and we built a proprietary algorithm for intelligent shopping recommendation technology, which meant that if you came on the site and you bought a ring from us, we knew the 98% accuracy that you would buy these particular earrings. And then next you would buy this particular headband. And then like we could take people through a guided journey of what to purchase because we were collecting over a million data points every single week on people's behavior and browse behavior. And we were looking at their geolocation and what was trending in their city. And we were looking about whether it was sunny in Minneapolis or it was raining in Chicago and showing an umbrella to the person who was raining in Chicago. Like it was just so thought out in terms of data and analytics. And so I was so proud and excited to start Send the Trend. And I started Send the Trend and I had a like kind of a skunk works team. And then once I, it launched and it started to take off, I was like, okay, behind the murders over. Like I kind of had both of them for a little while. And then I was like, no, you have to focus. You have to do one thing and do it well. You can't run two businesses. I have Wander Beauty, which I give my time and energy and do everything for. And then I have my investment fund and you can't run two businesses. So I have my investment fund. I have someone who works with me there. And at Wander, I have someone who every day runs the day-to-day who's our president. And that's the only way I'm able to be involved in both of these. And that has taken many years of practice and juggling. You cannot be full-time doing two things ever. You have to pick a lane, pick a side and do it. Absolutely. And you know, you mentioned that one thing, especially for entrepreneurs, it's so tough to close up shop for a company. And I think what really stands out for you is the business was doing well, you're profitable, but it wasn't hitting that scale that you personally wanted. So I think it's about being clear on your own values and what you want to bring to the world, which set you to start Save the Trend. And I know, you know, you sold the business for two, after two years, I believe to QVC, mm-hmm. which is huge. How did that deal come together? Were you, oh, that, that is, very, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that? So I launched the business, I think it's September, 2010. I took venture money in March, 2011, and I sold the company 11 months later in February, 2012. Wow. And I was pregnant and they didn't know that was a whole separate thing. So 
through all of this, it was just a roller coaster. The business grew exponentially, super fast. It was a rocket ship. We had an incredible team. We built, we scaled, we grew. And I had a child in the middle of all of this. And how it happened was really by networking relationships back to business school. I had a friend from business school who had another friend who worked at Liberty Media. Liberty Media was looking at making acquisitions on behalf of QVC. They met with me. We had this like amazing conversation. We had another amazing conversation. And the next thing you know, I had an offer to buy my business. And it was just happened so fast and so quickly. There were no bankers involved. And I negotiated everything on my own. And it was an amazing experience. And it was an incredible experience to actually work at QVC and learn from some of the incredible minds there in terms of merchandising and TV sales and television retail. It was all new to me. And, you know, I have a philosophy, be a sponge, learn everything, go into every new environment. I've been in four different industries with four different startups, and I've learned them all along the way. You know, learn it all, be a learn it all, not a know it all. Oh, I love that. That's a great quote. And when you, I mean, did you ever have any expectations that you would sell the business that quickly? It was a total surprise. I never thought it would happen that fast. And I was super excited about it. And it was just, it was a life-changing event for me, right? It was a completely life-changing event to sell a company, to be a majority owner of a company after venture funding and to sell it. There was just a lot there. At that stage, you mentioned you're pregnant with your first kid, I believe, right? You Mm -hmm. sold your business. And what was it about you at the time that wanted to start another business, Wonder Beauty? I mean, how did that idea come about? Because you did... That's called brain damage. (laughs) Yeah. Like you didn't even take a break. (laughs) I didn't. I didn't take even a 30 second break and I had two kids and I'm just a total nut job is what it comes down to. So I had my son two years later, you know, and I got accidentally pregnant with my daughter while I was nursing. That was just like two kids within two years was just, it was crazy. And they're literally, so their birthdays are four days apart, which is just wow manic. And I was actually supposed to deliver her on his birthday. So there's that. So it's really like they're, they're close in age and you know, they're best, they're like a married couple, they're best friends and they want to punch each other all at the same time. What happened in that scenario was that I was in the hospital room. I was delivering my daughter. I had a scheduled C-section, which I ended up having contractions early and going into the hospital. And I deliver the baby and I look at my husband and I was like one more. And he's like, you can have as many kids as you want with your next husband, knock yourself out. And I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. I need one more business. Like I, my brain is going to mush being in corporate America and I need to run, like, I need to start a company. Like this is just, this is my DNA. This is who I am. This is where I thrive and live as a human. Like I just, I'm an entrepreneur through and through. I will always be the early stages will always be my most fascinating, fun time of my life. And I have tremendous passion for it. And that's who I am. So he was like, no, I've been an entrepreneurial widow. I've picked you up at the hospital and I've picked you up at the office at 1130 at night when you're pregnant and you won't come home. And he's like, I can't go through this again. And I was like, I'm going to do it from home. I'm going to start the business. I'm going to have both the babies at home and I'm going to start it in the house and I'm just going to do it. And he's like, you know, he agreed. And then six months later, every time he opened a cabinet in the house, something fell out on his face. (laughs) (laughs) So there was that. It was some of that for a few years. The guest room became a warehouse. I mean, there were, there were things that happened. Sounds like my life right now. Yeah. But I hung on to working at home for as long as I could until I rented the apartment across the hall. And then we moved in an office space finally. But I got to spend those early years with my kids when I worked from home. I had nine people working out of my house at one point. It was crazy. Listen, it was there was nothing not nuts about it, but I wouldn't trade it for anything else. I had this pain point in my life. I used to go to work in the morning 
put on under eye concealer to look 25% better than when I left my house. I was doing my skincare routine at the gym and the valiant effort to lose the post baby weight, which by the way, nine years later, still working on that girlfriend, still working on it, work in progress. And, you know, I was doing my beauty routine in motion. I was living my life in motion. There was no brand that gives you beauty in motion, makes it easy, fuss-free, foolproof, do-it-yourself beauty. And that's what Wander Beauty was about. It was clean beauty because, you know, that should be table stakes. I had gone through autoimmune disease and really was only using clean beauty products. And it's just clean beauty essentials you reach for every day, wherever you wander. And to me, it made a lot of sense. And I'm glad I did it. Fast forward five years. Incredible. And I know at the time, I'm curious how you and your co-founder, Lindsay, got connected as someone who's now, again, on their fourth business. Like, What was it about Lindsay that made you excited to partner with her? Because that's another relationship and another marriage in your life too. Yeah, it is. And you know, we've been together for now almost seven years as friends and five plus years as co-founders. And then we actually started the company a year before we launched, so six plus years. And we have an amazing equation. We have mutual trust, we have mutual respect, and that's everything. And the most important thing about our partnership is that we have complementary skills. She is a creative. She is a creative vision. She is an incredible photographer, videographer, package designer, mood board creator. Like she is a creative vision and she's actually a huge product enthusiast too. She loves product. And so we intersect in product development, but she owns the creative and I own the business. And that's how we coexist. She does her thing and I trust her implicitly to make decisions. I do my thing and she trusts me implicitly to make my decisions. And so that mutual trust and respect and completely different skill sets actually works for us. And it works in a partnership. Yeah, I think that's a, I just want to underscore that because I think it's so important. If you are trying to partner with someone or have a co founder, having two different skill sets is so key. I've been in a position where me and my partner, we had very similar skill sets and it just it didn't work out. We both couldn't utilize what we're good at for the best. So I think that's a really great point. You guys started the company a year before you officially launched. I know you were very thoughtful about the SKUs you were bringing to life. And I believe you only launched with one SKU starting out or very few, which is very unique in the skincare and beauty industry. So I love to hear what those early days look like and how you really were cultivating that one product and how you thought about that. Yeah, so I felt very strongly that there's a lot of beauty out there. There's so much beauty out there. There's drugstore beauty, department store beauty. There's so much beauty. And so I felt like if you're not going to have a point of difference, stay home and don't do it. And so with Wander Beauty, when we came up with this concept of clean beauty essentials, things you reach for every day, wherever you wander, being gorgeous on the go is our DNA. That to me said, let's create one multitasker, one multi-use product that you can use at the gym, at your desk at work, in a car, in the front, in the back, on a train. Let's give you one product that can make you look polished and pretty in an instant. And so we created the On The Glow Blush and Illuminator, and it's a double-sided lip and cheek formula on one side so that your lipstick and your blush is covered. And then the other side is a cream eyeshadow slash highlighter formulation, which is kind of a nude glow. So it's kind of like your post-yoga glow in a stick. So this double-sided stick was our first SKU that we launched with. We won an Allure Best of Beauty Award for it. And we showed a video where you could use it literally 20 different ways. You've got lipstick, you've got blush, you've got cream eyeshadow, you've got a highlighter, you can use it 
on your clavicle, you can use it on your arms, your legs. And so this multitasking beauty essential that could make you look polished and pretty that would save you time because you're using a double-sided stick instead of pulling out five different products and brushes, save you space because you've got one stick and save you money because you're not buying five different things. That value proposition became really clear to the customer. And when customers see value in a brand, they continue to buy. And so that's really important for us that we took one skew, one problem, one messaging point to just show people that with the on the glow blush and illuminator, you're going to be gorgeous on the go. And that was it. You know, there's so many, like you mentioned, the value prop seems very attractive. I don't think there's any other product out there that can hit all those things that you mentioned. When you were getting the brand out there, what worked or what didn't work when you guys were just launching? I really believe that we went at it 360. We worked very hard to just focus on hitting every touch point we could. We reached out to every celebrity we knew. We reached out to every PR person we knew. We didn't have a PR agency. We didn't have, there was nothing. It was all grassroots. There's no marketing budget. It was like, who do we know? Which, you know, hairstylist do we know? Which influencer do we know? We just begged, borrow and stole and cold called and just pushed and hustled every which way we could to get our product out there. And that worked because it was a 360 focus on pushing hard to really get us out there. And that culmination of seeing us in press, seeing on Instagram, seeing us on YouTube, that was important. Building all of those touch points simultaneously drives brand awareness and drives awareness of the SKU to convert to purchase. And in those early days, when you guys were doing all these grassroots marketing efforts, how big was the team? How did you guys divide all the time? Tiny. It was <laughs> yeah. Lindsay, myself, and one full-time employee. Yeah. And then we had interns. That was it. We had one full-time employee for a long time until yeah. we were actually commercialized and selling. That's great to hear because I think sometimes people expect that to get any brand out there, you need a massive team. And sometimes it's just hustling with your partner or one other person to get something off the ground. 100%. And, you know, in a previous interview, you've also mentioned that you should only really raise money when you need it. So I'm curious from your perspective, how did you think about fundraising in your business? You know, I did it very carefully and very slowly. And I recommend that for everyone. Raise what you need, not what you want. And then raise 10 to 15% extra what I call mistake capital, because you will make mistakes. I made them all and I continue to make them. So raise what you need and raise just a little bit more. And then... That's really what I did. And then I raised a little bit of angel money before we launched. I raised a series A in April, 2017, which was our first institutional round. And then we really like invested in digital and that was it. And so we really just built the business with very little outside capital and reached milestones and inflection points where we felt like we needed the money. And then the goal is to run a business, to really run a business, one that can stand on its own two feet to be profitable. It's like, I'm not in the game of just this venture capital crack of just every time high growth, high growth, raise more money, raise more money. Like that's not a business. That's, you know, being addicted to venture crack. Exactly. I had Lee Mayer on the episode. She's founder Havenly. And oh, I know her well. I used to mentor her. Yeah. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. She's like, I crack up because whenever you raise around a funding, it, I mean, in some situations, not your situation, it's because we're not profitable yet. And people are congratulating me. And it's like completely backwards the way think about people think about raising money and venture capital in some situations. And another question that I have, you know, clearly it seems like you guys have been doing very well over the past five years. And one thing I'd love to dig into is, are there any challenges or any memorable moment in the company that was difficult for you, whether it's operationally or 
on the marketing branding side that you can talk to us about and really what you did to overcome that situation? Honestly, every day was hard. There was no day that wasn't hard. Every day as a CEO, you're solving problems. There's a new problem, you fix it. There's a shipment stuck in customs, you fix it. You got an FDA clearance issue, you fix it. You got a production problem, you got a shortage, you fix it. Every day is a problem. There's never a day where I'm not solving a problem. The best thing you could do is invest in great people who help alongside you solve the problems. And you mentioned this earlier in the interview, but you talked about how you've had a few mistakes just in terms of people and hiring. Can you talk more about that? Because to your point, a yeah. good business is all about the people around you and your team. You know, I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. And the biggest piece of advice I can share is hire for culture. You know, you can hire for skills and people can do a job and they can check the boxes and do as, you know, have a specific domain expertise. But when you, in the early days of startup, you need cross-functional athletes. You need people who can wear multiple hats, do a little of marketing, a little of customer service, a little of e-com, and someone who's willing to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. Highly intelligent, hardworking people who have a good attitude is all you need in the early days. Don't worry about their resume. Don't worry about where they went to college. Don't worry about their GPA. Worry about, are they highly intelligent? Intelligence comes in many forms. It can be street smarts. It can be book smarts. It can be a lot of things. And I'm open to all of it. I like intelligent people that I learn from every day and with a good attitude who are hardworking. Those are the kind of key tenets of what you need to focus on and the rest figures itself out. Yeah, absolutely. And so you talked about how you had two kids in a matter of two years, you know, all while running and starting a new business. What advice do you have for women who are in similar positions, who are trying to manage their careers and businesses, as well as be a mother? Any tips or advice as someone who's doing both? Listen, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. When I'm at work, I'm at work. I have my husband here with the kids, Zoom schooling, picking up, whatever it is. When I'm in school, like when I'm at home, I'm taking, like he's at work today, I'm holding down the fort. I'm on with you, they're doing workbooks. Like I will check those pages when we're off the podcast. And so you have to learn insane time management and time blocking. And most importantly, you have to learn to block out time for yourself because it's like oxygen. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. You can't be a good wife. You can't be a good daughter. You can't be a good mother. You can't just, you can't, you have to really invest in yourself and give yourself grace because a lot of shit's going to go wrong and you just got to roll with the punches. You know, sometimes my kids don't get lunch. Like I was literally in a meeting and I forgot to give my kids lunch because it ran over. I had another meeting. The next thing I knew it was 25 minutes late to give them lunch. And I was like, sorry, time out. I need to go give my kids lunch. I'll be back in 10 minutes. I love that. But to your point, you gave yourself grace. I mean, you were hard on yourself. It is is what it is. You just, you got to do it. You got to own it. You got to be who you are. Don't have the mom guilt. Ambition is a good thing. Go set your sights on the biggest goals, achieve them, but you need the support of a community. You need, like, if I didn't have my husband, my mother-in-law, who's a widow who lives in my apartment building, you need infrastructure because you can't do it alone. That's how the business gets built. Your team has to give you grace. They have to cover for you when you have family emergencies. You have to cover for them when they need time with their families. That's why we work in teams, right? Absolutely. And as someone who invests in mentors, so many entrepreneurs, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that people are doing starting out in their business? I think that people raise too much money too quickly because they get enamored with the idea of raising money. And I'm highly opposed to it. 
I genuinely believe that you should raise what you need plus the 10 to 15% mistake capital. I don't believe in collecting checks just to feel like you can have the Forbes article. It's not going to get you anywhere. And so I feel strongly that too many entrepreneurs get enamored with raising money. They raise too much too quickly. Then money's like a hole in your pocket. You raise it and then you start spending it and then you start burning it. And all of a sudden, the unit economics of the business and the financials start falling away. What are some of the metrics that people should think about when they should maybe raise money? I think that you do it in stages, like I mentioned, and you raise it when you need it. Like I highly recommend you bootstrap in the early days, do friends and family, try and get to proof of concept. When you have product market fit, then you raise a little bit more money to scale. Then when you really need, you're having growth challenges and you can't fulfill orders, you raise more money to scale then. That's how you think about the business and always raise what you need and keep a metric and and pulse on KPIs. What are your key performance indicators? Are you a dot-com business? Are you growing your average order size? Are you driving your conversion rate? Like what are you doing in pieces that is really important for you to build the business and you can measure that success? Have milestones, have goals and measure them regularly. Absolutely. And I want to be mindful of our time together. There's a closing question we like to ask all of our guests. And wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth means rich relationships. It really, you know, my mom sent me a TED talk and it said, What is the number one factor that allows people to live to 100? And there were factors like, oh, they had a healthy diet or they exercised regularly or they quit smoking or they quit drinking. And these were all factors of why people live to 100. But the number one reason why people live to 100 is because they had deep personal relationships. And to me, wealth is relationships. Mm. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you, Divya, for sharing your incredible story and being with us today. So appreciate it. So happy to be here. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even better, sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on our new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. And if you have any feedback or just want to say hi, reach out to me on Instagram at Yasmin K. Nori, or feel free to email me at Yasmin at BehindHerEmpire.com. Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to acknowledge this incredible community of women listening. There are so many of you that are working incredibly hard to build your own empire, and I want to celebrate your success. So occasionally, at the end of our episodes, I'll be highlighting an inspiring story from one of our community members. Let's listen in to this week's featured entrepreneur. Hi, my name is Leah, and I am the founder and CEO of Unlit, the recovery drink. It's a plant-based adaptogen recovery drink that we make. It's full of uh, adaptogens, nootropics, and essential nutrients like B vitamins and electrolytes. Our goal is to be the first fruit juice-based after-social recovery drink. I created Unlit because... I wanted to give social drinkers from 
college partiers to, I would say, older millennials like myself, total recovery options that are just better for the body. The things that are out on the market these days are essentially geared towards one type of symptom and or recovery, be it just rehydration or just B vitamins or energy boost. And it's really not focused on complete and total wellness. And that's what I wanted to focus on with Unlit. So my goal is I really do look forward to along with beer and wine and cocktails at social gatherings that there should be a bottle of Unlit in every gathering. The biggest challenges that I've faced and had to overcome in 2020 Of course, with the pandemic and everything, it's been really challenging to deal with the extra costs on top of my startup costs. I originally budgeted for very limited amount, and I was hoping to stretch my savings in better ways. But with the additional supplies that we had to come up with for shipping and production. I did come across a lot of shipping logistics issues where we lost packages and there's breakages and those costs really do start to add up over time. So that's one of the things that was challenging for us in 2020. Another big thing that's been challenging for us is financing. We definitely are bootstrapped and we're definitely trying to scale. But of course, in CPG companies, The way that the current landscape is with social media marketing, they really want you to hit the ground running with these huge, insane budgets. So that's definitely been a challenge to be impactful and to try to saturate as much as possible with the limited resources that we have. One of my creative solutions that I did was I used vendors from all over the globe. We have a brilliant email marketing designer from Sydney, Australia, and our amazing graphics team from Bogota, Colombia. They've done a phenomenal job. They did our rebranding. I mean, I got our branding done for a fraction on the dollar. So I would definitely say that to any new or up-and-coming entrepreneurs. You're looking for resources and you're looking to get stuff done Definitely, what do they say? Think outside the box. I would say think outside the borders. I started this business as a business. I knew I wanted to start a joint company. Uh, it definitely wasn't a side hustle or a hobby. Frankly, I just got sick of my hangover symptoms one day. I got sick of feeling crappy. I got sick of it taking up so much time for the rest of my day, or as some people say, borrowing from tomorrow's happiness. And I thought that there just had to be a better way than just losing just so much out of my day. So that's really what I did. I challenged myself and I set out to use my chemistry background to create something and find a solution to what I felt like was a problem that folks haven't already addressed, honestly. For anybody who's looking to start their business during this time, I can truly say that I feel super blessed starting during a pandemic and during 2020 because people were listening. I don't think many people would have been listening or open or receptive the way that they were in 2020, especially not restaurants, especially not bartenders. A lot of restaurants were put in such an uncomfortable position and grocery stores that they're willing to lend an ear to almost anything 
if it would have ensured sales. And that honestly was pivotal in our 2020 to get us where we are to today. So I would certainly say if anybody is wondering, should they start if they're scared because of the pandemic, I think absolutely now is the time to start whatever it is that you're looking to start. I hope that my boss is not listening because I still am working full time, but working from home has been crucial to growing this business. I do so much of my work during the day and I can. Prior to that, I used to sneak around the office a lot and taking phone calls and going in corners or walking to a different floor. And I don't have to do that anymore. So if they do open up my office, I literally have no idea what I'm going to do. But I would say start now if you are working. And that's about it. If you're looking for more information, our website is unlit.co, U-N-L-I-T.co. And most of our social media handles is Get Unlit. Unlit.